Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media. I just wanted to make sure I took some time to let you know about this great tool that helps me to keep my podcast moving at a really good rate of production. This tool is Anchor by Spotify, and it is probably one of the easiest ways to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a host of other options. It's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free. So, hey, let me know what you think. And as always, it's the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. Good day, everybody. This is Brandon again, uh, doing another video. I said I was going to touch on some issues with soteriology, and I know before I go ahead and start really doing more exposition of teaching through the book of Romans, I wanted to uh, hit on a topic that I get questions about uh, why, uh, pretty much around why is it that when you deal with apostolics, we don't believe in the sinner's prayer? Well, there are several good reasons for that. The first is that, one, we don't find it in the Bible anywhere. Two, we can find it in the uh, history's progression of how this belief came to be. And and, as, and it really hurts me because I, I've preached in a lot of different groups and, you know, things like that. And most places you go, they'll have a thing that they call the sinner's prayer, which for those who don't know, it's kind of like the TVN thing where people, you know, they say, all those that want to be saved, wherever you are, lift your hands. And if you want, you know, accept Jesus, quote unquote, non-scriptural language in your heart as your Lord and personal Savior, do this. Blase, blase, I accept you, such and such, such. And I want you to be the Savior of my life. And then usually the minister, probably uh, with good intentions, will say, well, now, if you prayed that prayer and believed it, you're ready to go to heaven. But the question is, according to the Bible, are you really? When you look at the history of the sinner's prayer, you'll notice that there are some troubling uh, things that we notice about it. Uh, it, it. It is, number one, not to take away from the sincerity that people have when they say it, but sincerity alone doesn't equate uh, proper salvation or the steps needed to take to obey the gospel. Um, when you look at the time of the Reformation, all these things begin to take place. There was a lot of different groups uh, really trying to find their place scripturally. Uh, and it really, politically, they were trying to get away from the Catholic Church. Uh, so a lot of this kind of helped push that. And so now what's interesting here is that even at this time, right at the time of the Reformation, that a lot of people still believe that baptism was essential for salvation. Uh, it, you'll notice that the later influence of separation from baptism a part of uh, the plan of salvation was something that happened later on. You go to the time of the Great Awakening where, you know, there was a lot of preaching going on and there was a lot of um, preachers that created an environment, you know, that people really uh, were encouraged to make a decision to follow God, which I think is good. But you will not have properly responded to the invitation given if you do not act upon the directions that were given. 
And one of the most interesting things that came out of the time period around the uh, 1730s or the 1740s was something that they called the mourner's seat in the South. People say the mourner's bench, which my grandparents told me uh, before they came into holiness, they were Baptists. And they would tell me about uh, the mourner's seat. And uh, the mortar seat was invented, as far as we know, from a minister by the name of Eliezer uh, Wheelock. And he utilized this technique, basically, to kind of put the person in a position of making a decision. Well, what actually happened, it was more like Christian hazing, if you will. And uh, for those uh, who are familiar with tearing, I have a, a looming suspicion that this that the practices in uh and for those who are not familiar with it uh that's something that you see mostly in the uh african-american pentecostal church uh kind of the more so repetitious call on jesus which i don't think is wrong and i think god filled a lot of people with that method uh i got the holy ghost calling on jesus and i think it works still but i got a got a got an impression uh that that that's a little bit of how they intersect but what actually happened, they end up with the uh, method Mr. Wheelock used. It, it, it kind of more so encouraged people to kind of not be left out because I don't want to seem like I'm a devil. Like, I don't want to, you know, be saved. And I think this was problematic because it really didn't cause real conversion of the heart. It really caused more so submitting to social pressure. And uh, uh, his name, I forgot, he was a uh, early African-American uh, poet in the 19th century. Uh, his name's gonna come to me, but he, uh, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, he talked about as a child, uh, going through the mourner seat method and, uh, the pressure and them crying. And, you know, when he got home, he was in his room crying all night long because, you know, and his mother was so excited because she thought her baby made a decision to follow Jesus. But he said he was crying because he no longer believed in Jesus because he said if Jesus has to, uh, do such weird methods to get me to follow him. I want to follow him, but you know, so it, it there's a lot of problems with the morning seat method. But historically, you'll notice that it was in, uh, we, we will notice uh, that there was a gentleman by the name of Charles Finney, and uh, Charles Finney lived from 1792 to 1875, and he was kind of somewhat, I guess, the champion of the method used by Mr. Wheelock, uh, and shortly after his conversion. He uh, left his law practice and he would become a minister and a lecturer, a professor and a traveling revivalist. He took the mourner seat practice, which he called the anxious seat. Now, Charles Finney, for those who don't know, he is credited to being, I guess, the guy who really popularized the idea of being a Baptist, uh, at least in the state. And he really spread the mourner seat method, which I do believe when you see a lot of the uh, early century Pentecostals that the mourner seat method kind of merged into what we call the altar tearing. Um, and it, it's interesting because this was very much uh, used by a lot of folks. But what you notice, a gentleman emerged after Finney by the name of John Nevin and uh, or Nevin, and he opposed the method used by Charles Finney. And Mr. Nevin was a Protestant minister who uh, wrote a book called The Anxious uh, Bench. He intended to protect the denominations from this uh, method because he felt that it was kind of more, it, it caused more fanaticism. It caused, you know, more just people responding emotionally without really making their mind to really uh, follow God. And the thing that happened, folks will make these decisions and they'll go down and do all this stuff. But when they would leave, 
there wouldn't be any evidence that their heart had really changed. And that was really the problem with a lot of these methods. And so you would have a little bit later a guy named Dwight Moody who would come along and uh, he would uh, put an, a real strong theological argument to uh, uh, the mourner seat or the, the anxious seat as used by uh, other gentlemen in history. Uh, and he, he would really popularize uh, when people would come down to accept the Lord, they would come and he would have these rooms, uh, these inquiry rooms, if you would call it that. And they would uh, have trained counselors there to talk to people and to uh, help them uh, understand what it is to more so the inquiry room was it was it was strong psychologically so that people wouldn't be. How can I say? Uh seduced intellectually and emotionally to make a public confession of faith it was really making sure you understood what you were doing and what it required and i think there's a lot of good use of that i would say maybe even in apostolic churches having something that people really understand uh what it's going to take to follow god i don't see any issue with that all the thing is it takes time it takes training and you just can't let any uh, guy off the street get up and be over something like that. You have to know something. Uh, and so later on, you have a guy uh, named R.E. Torrey who succeeded Moody's Bible uh, College-based ministry after his death in 1889. And he modified the approach that Moody was using because it was time-consuming, at least from their viewpoint, that he was going to do something called on-the-spot street conversions. And Tory uh, popularized the idea of instant salvation with no strings attached, even though he had never intended uh, as much. And, you know, so he was he would uh, Tory, as far as I can see, historically was the one that would say, hey, you where you are, lift your hands right now. You can become a part of the Church of Jesus Christ by just accepting him into your heart and, 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 and submitting to his lordship with good intent. He what you'll see this really help that progression of the separation from uh, the apostolic method of repenting of sins, being baptized in Jesus' name, and receiving the Holy Ghost with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. Well, another guy would come after Mr. Tory uh, by the name of Billy Sunday in the Pacific Garden Mission. And Billy Sunday was a baseball player. And apparently he had some encounter with Moody's Bible Institute. And uh, he uh, confessed to conversion and but moody was uh excuse me billy sunday was somewhat of a showman i mean this guy he had the uh, razzle dazzle you know he just he knew how to work a crowd and so he was one of the first type of national evangelists that really uh combined a charismatic personality so you know for that that's palatable palatable to uh the entertainment industry uh but he would like have these things and he would get folks at these messages after really preaching strong messages on morality and politics and have people come down the quote-unquote sawdust trail to the front where he was standing and he told them if you would just come down and, and shook his hand publicly then people knew you were saved and that's where you see even in some southern churches where people say oh, all you gotta do is just uh come down and shake my hand and uh, you're going to have a seat in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's where that lie from hell came from. Because, I mean, that is the most unbiblical nonsense. Uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy. But you have to understand, Billy Sunday was an entertainer. 
he knew how to work the crowd like many of the uh, televangelists today, like a station that starts with a T and ends with an N. Uh, I'm not going to name them. Uh, so Billy Sunday was was he, he he really popularized that. And because of the pressure of his perceived national success, most denominations of the day did not believe in the sinner's prayer. They didn't follow such nonsense. Even within the Southern Baptist uh, group today, there's still controversy over the sinner's prayer. Uh, Billy Graham uh, was an offshoot of the influence of, 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 uh, of, of Billy Sunday. And what a lot of folks don't know is that in Billy Graham's time, he was a very controversial figure. Uh, most of them thought he was a compromiser. Uh, he used a lot of the... Because the, 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 Billy Graham was very charming, very well-spoken. And he used a lot of that kind of stuff. And he, he, he seduced people with his messages. And what we have to realize, despite how much I may like a person, despite how much I may think they're great, if they're not preaching what the apostles preached, then we have a problem. This is why as apostolics, we don't trace our roots back uh, at origin to Azusa Street. We'll say there was a revival of apostolic doctrine. Uh, we don't. We don't classify ourselves as Protestants uh, because we're not protesting anything. We're preaching what we've always preached, and that is uh, what the scripture has taught us to teach. And what's interesting, these methods really popularized the method of uh, Lord Jesus, I accept you in my heart. When we go into the scriptures and, and, and we look at what the Bible says, the Bible never tells us to do such a thing. Acts 2, uh, the Bible lets us know around 37 verse, when they heard these things, the Bible lets us know they were pricked to their hearts. They were convicted by the preaching, and this is Peter preaching to the Jews. And they, knowing that they crucified the Lord of glory, that God has made the same Christ, both Lord and Christ. And at that moment, they heard the gospel, which uh, the scripture defines as a death, burial, and resurrection. Well, how come they responded in verse 37 and saying, well, men and brethren, what must we do? Now, when you deal with more mainline denominations, they say, oh, that's legalism. Oh, you're, you're preaching salvation by works. They seem to understand that you need to do something to be saved, uh, not to create salvation, but to accept salvation. Uh, and it was more than just accepting or believing. Why? The Bible says the devils believe and tremble, but are they saved? And unfortunately today, this is why you have as many people that are just as safe as the devil and why they're still living like the devil. Um, but Peter told them, why, why didn't Peter respond and say, you know what, you guys, you're already saved. You, you, you heard the gospel and you accepted it in your hearts uh, to believe it's true. And now we're just going to baptize you as a outward sign of an inward change. Peter didn't say any of that. Look it up. Acts 2. What did he tell them to do? Repent. In the Greek, it's a change of mind that causes a change of direction. And be baptized. The word in the Greek is to be submerged in the water. When you look at the Greek, the language definitely indicates there was an oral invocation of the name of the Lord Jesus at the baptism over the baptismal candidate. And he instructed them to receive the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to them that are far off. Now, what was the promise? Peter uh, let them know earlier in the book that the things that you now see and hear, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Usually people say, well, no, in, Act, in uh, Romans 10, it says, if you just accept the Lord Jesus in your heart as your personal Savior, the only problem with that is 
uh, that chapter, uh, if you look at verses 1 through 3, he's making it quite clear. He's talking about corporate salvation to the nation of Israel. And he, when he says that, uh, Romans 10 and 9 is a quotation of Joel, the second chapter, which is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. You can't go to Romans before you go to Pentecost. Romans was written to people who were already saved. So, after looking at these things, and just, I know this wasn't as exhaustive and wasn't meant to be a full apologetic, but it's my morning thought. Knowing where these ideas have come from and that they are anti-biblical and anti-God, what are you going to do about your salvation today? Am I going to repent of my sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, and receive the Holy Ghost? Or am I going to continue in man-made religion? If you have any questions, want to talk, want to have a Bible study, hey, reach out to me. I'm here. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you want to uh, get some information on the discussion we're having tonight uh, with Brother Kip on uh, uh, the need for infant baptism, uh, let me know. We look forward to seeing everybody tonight at 7. Thanks. Have a great day.